We took a quick trip to Nashville, Tennessee this week. It was like half of you guys were like leaving on fall break and we just decided let's go see our daughter and friends and so we got to get away and it was it was good to see and uh, actually first time I've seen my daughter's tiny home in person because of the pandemic we really haven't been able to get down there and and do that so uh, she's doing good but it's good to be home as well we left last week um, with going through chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, we got through the first nine verses where Paul was encouraging married people to have sex. Some of you thanked thank me all week long for that message. Some of you ignored me, but uh, that's all right. Uh, my wife always wanted to make sure that I said to have sex inside of marriage, so uh, make sure that that's in there as well, <coughs> inside of marriage. And uh, as we get into today's passages, verses 10 through 40, the last part of chapter 7, I have to remind you what the context of this was. I said it last week, but I'll say it again this week, is that there was a group of people that were all about celibacy. They were pro-celibacy, and they had an agenda that they wanted people to abstain from sex. In the very first letter that we don't have a copy of, Paul said something about not touching other women or men, and he was in reference to outside of marriage. But they totally took that as, if you're going to be dedicated to the Lord, then you shouldn't have sex at all. And so now the people came back and they had questions And Paul is trying to explain exactly what he said in the first letter. And as you know, he said, if you're married, it's good for you to have sex. It's God's gift to you as you are one flesh. And so today we get to kind of another difficult part in the scripture for a pastor to teach. But I think that you know my heart. And you know how I... Uh, have done ministry. In, in this very room, I realize that we have married people, we have divorced people, we have remarried people, we have widows and widowers, and we have single people in this room right here. And as as was said so eloquently by Al, if I could say one thing to you at Levner is, you are welcomed here in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody. We're not viewed based upon our marital status, but we're viewed in here based upon our identity in Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no condemnation here. There's no condemnation here, so don't start feeling uncomfortable here today when you hear what we read out of the Word. Just process with us, all right? Just process with us. We start in verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, 
and a husband is not to divorce his wife. We'll stop right there. Literally, what, here's what Paul is saying. Instead of saying, don't do this, here's what he's saying. Work things out. Stay together, figure it out, and work things out. When I do premarital counseling, uh, one of the first things that I ask the, the couple is, do you know what the top three reasons for divorce are? I think I've said this in here before. Anybody know what the top three reasons for divorce are? Finances is number three. What? Someone said kids. <laughs> Sex, I heard over here, is number two. And number one is the one that hardly anyone ever gets. What? In-laws, uh, the, actually number four is the bride's mother. Communication is number one. But here's what I always say. So when we do premarital counseling, we work on communication. We talk about communication. We literally talk about sex in a sense that I give them this, the presentation I did on the Song of Solomon here at one time. I just ask them to listen to that and keep that. And, because I, I really think that, that that passage of Scripture is great for them as a couple when it concerns sex. If you are interested in that, I can send you a link to those messages. And then the third one is we have them go through financial peace with Dave Ramsey, uh, which is just good for them to be on the same page when they start. But I say all that to say this, is those are symptoms. Those are all symptoms of a root issue. And the root issue is either one or both being selfish. Either one or both being selfish. So when he's literally sitting here saying, don't leave your husband, don't leave your wife, he's asking them, are you thinking about yourself or are you thinking about the other person? He's literally saying, I know it's tough, but work this thing out. Figure it out. In verse 12 he says, But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. It's interesting here because Paul's saying these things to both the husband and the wife, and it's not a double standard. In the Greco-Roman world, and even in the Jewish world, the, 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 in the Jewish world, the husbands had the right to divorce their wife if they burnt dinner. But the wife could never divorce the husband. And Paul's literally saying, hey, this, is, there's, this goes both ways. You stay together. And here's the, here's the context that you're in, too. Think about this. Is you're, you're talking about uh, mixed marriages of faith, where one is a believer and one is a non-believer. 
that was probably more common then than it is now. And the reason I say that is because Christianity was new at the time. So these people were, were married as non-believers because Christianity wasn't even around. And then they come and hear Paul's message about Jesus and what he's done for them, and maybe one of them accepts Jesus as their Savior and Lord and has salvation, and the other one doesn't. So now you've got this mixed marriage thing that's happened after the marriage has begun. You hear what I'm saying? And so he's having to deal with this. If you've, if you've come to faith and they want to stay with you, don't divorce them. Watch what he says in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife. Oh, wow. And the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, that's a hard passage because when we talk about holy in here, when we talked about the way it's actually, in some translations, says sanctified, you sanctify the other person. It's like because of your belief that they're, and you're sanctified, you're set apart, now they are as well. That's what you would assume that it says. But let me say this. In the scripture, it talks about you are sanctified, past tense, ED. It's already occurred. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, this is what he did. He sanctified you. But it also talks about us being sanctified, like it's something that is continual. And so then you get into theological arguments about are we sanctified past tense, it's already happened, or are we in the process of being sanctified? Well, if you know the, in your identity and you know who you are, my soul and my spirit has been purified, it's sanctified, it's holy, it's past tense, it's a done deal because of what Jesus did on the cross. What is being sanctified is my daily actions and behaviors, I still sometimes act out of selfishness, out of my flesh, all right? I still make bad choices. But because I'm growing in the Lord and focusing on the Lord and in tune with the Lord and the spirit that's within me, every day my behavior is improving. He's doing that in me, and so therefore it's being sanctified. So then when I read this, we're not really talking about salvation here. When the, wife, when the wife sanctifies the husband, when the wife makes the husband holy or the husband makes the wife holy, what happens here is you have a new heart, a believer in Jesus Christ living in the house, and they impact, they impact the rest of the house. What they model for the rest of the house then they begin living like that and their behavior begins to become sanctified and set apart. Are you you tracking with me? It's not that they've received salvation, but it's the influence of one's nature, whether it's sinful or new, it has a great impact on others in the house. Generational sin is a real thing. It's scriptural. 
Like one of the other things that we do in premarital counseling is we look at the family tree. Let me hear about your family tree. What are the issues in your family? Your health issues, your emotional issues, your addiction issues, your divorce issues. Let's talk about that because you're bringing all that baggage into this relationship. Generational sin is a real thing because it has an impact on generation to generation. Well, so does holiness. Holiness does the exact same thing. My mother, my personal mother had a great impact on my family. Like, when all the grandkids would come together and be around my mom, they acted one way. Because they respected their grandmother. They respected their mom. But when they led their personal lives, it was a different story. And my mom had this impact from her holiness that she was set apart because of what Jesus did in her life, that it greatly impacted our family. I believe that impact will continue even in her death. No question about it. They know the difference. I know the difference. But again, sometimes it comes down to selfishness. What I want when I want it. <laughs> Let me tell you something. What you want when you want it will destroy you. It will destroy you. I don't want to do that. will destroy you. In ministry, there's a lot of times I don't want to do what the Spirit's leading me to do. I get in some pretty uncomfortable situations. And I don't even want to be there. But then I have to realize this isn't about me. This is about others. Jesus literally came to say life is about others. It only came down to it being about Jesus because he gave every ounce of his life to others. You say, well, it's all about Jesus. Well, the only reason it's about Jesus is because he came here to serve. That's it. He literally gave up his life for everyone. Everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So in the context of marriage, is it about you and what you're going to get out of it? Or is it about the spouse? His needs, her needs, the, the book. My needs are totally different than my wife's needs. I can selfishly try to fulfill my needs. And I become dependent upon myself. And my wife can do the same thing. Or, the other option is, I can begin to meet my wife's needs. And she'll meet my needs. And in a sense, that's what becoming one flesh is. When we become dependent upon each other 
as a husband and a wife. Verse 15, it says, But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wow. That, that verse, God, is, I, God, wants me to, God wants me to be happy. I can do whatever I want. Because God wants me to be happy. This is specifically about an unbeliever matched with a believer. God has called you to live in peace. Now, I'll say this. Jesus taught, Jesus taught there was an exception clause in his teaching. If you go back to Matthew 19, 19, he said, in the case of adultery or sexual unfaithfulness, then you can divorce. All right? If you look at all the teachings of Jesus on divorce, this one that Paul just stated right here, it wasn't in Jesus' teaching. But what he just said, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. Jesus didn't ever teach that. You go back to Mark 10, and there's a parallel passage I just mentioned, Matthew 19. And then he also talks about it in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And literally what Jesus says is marriage is designed for life. As long as you live. That's what it's designed for. But now, Paul's given us another out. Verse 16, it says, Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Let me tell you right now, a husband or a wife cannot actually save a person in faith. They have to come to faith in their own. But that husband or wife can definitely lead in a spiritual way that they come to a point of salvation. And that's literally what Paul's saying right here. Stick around. If they're not willing to leave, hang out with them because you're going to have an impact on their life and they may see the truth, the good news of the gospel through you. This happens, this happens quite often, you guys. And the only way that they come to salvation is not because you did something, it's because other than you prayed for them and you modeled it for them. That's it. You, Luke, there's nothing that you can do to save Noah other than to pray for him and to love him. And to model for him what it looks like to live out of a new heart. It's not your responsibility to save Noah, Anne. That's God's deal. And I believe it's the same thing that he's saying right here. Stay in the marriage. Stay in the marriage because give God... You just said you can't believe that the progress that he's made. I've wa- There's marriages in here that I'm like, I'm, they're excelling. And it's like, for a long time, they didn't. They didn't. God's done some miraculous movement in here. He's saying, stay with it. Then now he's talking about some different situations in life in verse 17. He says, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned him when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. This is the verse where we literally say, 
blossom where you're planted. Blossom where you're planted. Like, uh, you can take that verse right there, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned him when God called him. In other words, God assigned me to Michelle. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think I had a free will to choose Michelle. People believe that God has this appointed one for you. Well, yeah, God has this appointed one for you out of the, the foreknowledge of what your choice was going to be. She is the one that's appointed for me. But I was able to choose her, and she was able to choose me. But what he's saying here is if you come to salvation in the middle of that relationship, stay with it. Stay with it. That's where God assigned you. It's where he's got you. It's like you came to this relationship through the Lord. Now stay with it. Just because you become a believer in Jesus Christ doesn't mean you have to change your current situation. The process is that you learn how to live out of your new heart in your present situation. Unless it's immoral or unethical then the Spirit will possibly lead you out of that, I would assume. In verse 18, he says, Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. People say, why do you always talk about circumcision? It's just here. It's right here. It's not my fault. But think about that. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. That is a thing that truly happened. It was called epispasm. And they would graft skin from your body and place it on as a foreskin to your penis to, to redo the circumcision. Uh, which is kind of crazy because the whole reason God chose circumcision for the Jews was because it was something that couldn't be undone. Once the flesh was cut away, it died. And it couldn't be undone. But you're talking about living in a Roman Greco world right here where young Jewish boys were dispersed because, you know, they had to leave Jerusalem and they had synagogues there in Corinth. So you had Jewish boys there and they participated in athletics and as you know from your history books, how did they participate in athletics? Naked. And so these little Jewish boys didn't want to be called out. And they actually had a procedure that caused them to redo their circumcision, to undo it. It's crazy when you get this in the context of history. And he's literally sitting here saying, The whole purpose of circumcision was because it was signifying you don't do this. You you can't undo this. It was intended for the Jews. Watch what he says. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Hmm. Circumcision does not matter and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. (laughs) The certain amount of one's skin around its private parts has nothing to do with one's obedience to God, is what he's saying. That was a Jewish thing. Jesus has come. He's made a new covenant. 
doesn't even matter anymore. Stop. Just stop. So how does one keep God's commands? Well, naturally. Look, I naturally keep God's commands. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, it's because when I believed in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, he took out my sinful nature It was natural for me to sin when I was born because I received that from Adam. He took that out and he replaced it with a new heart, a heart of flesh. And now I want to do things according to the Spirit. And if I do things according to the Spirit, it's not going to be in opposition of God's law. It's not. I'm just going to do things according to the Spirit. I walk by the Spirit. Verse 20, it says, Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Again, the word slaves there in our understanding is totally different. Americans, from the time that we've had slavery, we have this idea of what slavery means, and it's totally different than what was happening in the Greco-Roman. This is almost like as an employer, an employee to an employer. But yes, they were paid for, and they did have to work a certain period of time. But Paul's saying to them, "You're, you're free to be free. You're free. If you have the opportunity to be free, take it. I'm not telling you to stay in this situation. Paul's not saying you must always stay a slave because you were when you received salvation. That's not what he's saying here. If you have the opportunity to be free from a specific job, then take it. Verse 24, it says, Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation which he was called. Again, he's repeating a previous verse, and he's saying, Blossom where you're planted. Take advantage of where you're planted. Just grow right there. Verse 25, he says, Now about virgins. And this is where he's talking to the pro-celibacy group. He's like, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion. Oh, here we go. I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Paul's saying, I got the download of all Jesus' teachings from my conversion experience on the road to Damascus in the time that I spent alone. I understand everything Jesus taught, but Jesus never talked about this. That's what he just said. He's, He's never talked about this. Anything concerning virgins or practicing celibacy. But he does affirm right here there's a spirit living inside of him to speak his opinion about this specific issue. Verse 24 says, Because of the present distress, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Married or single, he's talking about. What's the current distress? Well, Jesus is coming back any day now. This this is important. You guys figure this out because Jesus is coming back. This is only like 20 years after Jesus was crucified on the cross and he said he was coming back. So every day they lived their life like Jesus was coming back and this is important. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, however, if you do, 
get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. <laughs> he, he's literally debating with these pro-celibacy people who are saying, you know, if you get married and have sex, you guys are going to be sinning. That They believed in it so much. Paul's not saying if you get married, you're going to have trouble. He's trying to, he, and he's, he's not trying to warn them that, you know, these things are going to happen to you. He explains this in his thought process. Here's what he says. He says, this is what I mean. Brothers and sisters, the time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world, its current form is passing away. He's literally saying, this isn't going to be very long before Jesus returns. I mean, the return of Jesus is imminent. And this is the way Paul lived his life. It's like every day Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. And so the things that you're concerning yourself with, you know, like, should I leave? Should I get remarried? And he's like, there's bigger issues here. What we do in our personal lives is secondary to the mission of the good news is what Paul's teaching here. Think about teaching the good news. Verse 32, he says, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Paul here is highly recommending those who are single and have undivided time to devote themselves to the things of the Lord because he is returning. That's a big deal. He's like, if you're single, focus on the things of the Lord and this is a good thing. If you're married, you're going to have less time because you're going to be focusing on your spouse and on your children. Not that that's sin. Like, literally, I had the choice of doing full-time ministry and not ever getting married. Or I had the choice of marrying Michelle and having kids and they've taken my time. Yeah, if I wasn't married, would I have a bigger ministry? Would I have reached more people? not concerned about it because I know God called me to my relationship with Michelle and my kids. And he's saying, it's okay. It says, verse 36, if any man thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, if she's getting beyond the usual age, the peak age of marriage for a female, and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. This statement is made in relation to the whole pro-celibacy community. Lay off these people. If they want to get married and they want to have sex, there's nothing wrong with that. Leave them alone. We get that you're passionate about spreading the good news and 
being dedicated to the Lord, but they're okay. There is nothing wrong with it. They had an agenda, and they were being aggressive with it. You know what I'm talking about with aggressive agendas. They were shaming people in public because they were wanting to get married. Verse 37, it says, But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, gets to make his own choices, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiance will do well. So then, he who marries his fiance does well, but he who does not marry will do better. Wait, what? Paul sounds like he's promoting the pro-celibacy life, but I honestly think he's promoting his own situation because this is who he is. At this point, Paul's not married. We don't know if he's been widowed at this time or if he ever was married. But he literally likes having the opportunity to do this full time and to focus on it. Verse 39, it says, A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants. Only in the Lord. Now we're talking about widows. Remember that Christianity was new to these people. This is one of those issues that we've already like d- talked about is that were they married to a believer or a non-believer? At this point, if she's become a believer and becomes a widow, he's saying, if you're going to remarry, you probably need to marry a believer. You need to be in sync in your faith. Verse 40, it says, but she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. Paul's the single guy, and he's like, it's okay for her not to get married again. Again, Paul is saying here, because he says, it's my opinion. I never heard Jesus teach this, but I'm listening to the Spirit inside of me, and I'm giving you my opinion about this situation. And then the last thing he says, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. These pro-celibacy people were saying, we've listened to God and we know what he's saying to us is that we need to remain celibate for life and not have sex. And Paul's literally saying right here, I'm pretty sure I can hear the Spirit of God as well. He doesn't say even better. He's just like, I can hear the Spirit of God. So we finish verse 40, and we got this whole situation about divorce on the table. Let me uh, talk to that for a few minutes as we close. We have two exception cases here. It may be that both relate to what God constitutes in a marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. In that verse, he says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Jesus said divorce is permissible based upon adultery or sexual unfaithfulness. Adultery destroys the second of those two criteria, and they become one flesh. Abandonment, leaving the marriage with no intention to return, destroys the first, the bond with the husband and wife. It may be, therefore, that Jesus and Paul 
they recognize that they really aren't giving permission for divorce, but divorce has probably already occurred. They're merely acknowledging the two situations that have happened. Divorce happens a long time before divorce papers are signed. There's a legalness that comes from the world that you sign off on the divorce. But the divorce has happened long before that. We're prone to think that a change in circumstances is always the answer to a problem sometimes. But the problem is usually, is usually within us rather than around us. The heart of every problem is the heart problem. I've watched couples go through divorce and seek happiness in new circumstances only to discover that they carried their problems with them. A Christian lawyer once said about the only people who profit from divorces are the attorneys. If Jesus were intending to give a comprehensive list of legitimate reasons for divorce, then Paul literally contradicts him by adding one to it. If, that was, if those were the only circumstances, the ones that Jesus listed, Paul just added to it and contradicts Jesus. And if Paul were intending to give a, a comprehensive list of all the possible reasons for door, divorce, then he failed to acknowledge the one that Jesus already gave. So, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there possibly could be other situations where divorce might be the lesser of two evils. Now, as a pastor... As a pastor, I am very, very, very careful not to endorse divorce. I listen. I hear both stories. I hear both sides. And sometimes I'm even led to believe that a divorce may be the solution. But I will never endorse it for that couple. Because I believe God can do a big thing. I've seen it. I see it in this room. I've seen God work through amazing relationships that seem broken and disastrous. This is not an easy topic for us to discuss because there's so many different situations in here. All I'm going to do is lay out the scriptures teach them the, the best that we can and leave them for you to make a decision. And in those tough instances, I'm going to offer support and prayer and love you just like you do your kids. This is a place of no condemnation. This is a place where we see each other based upon their identity in Jesus Christ. 
This is a place where you are welcome in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what God intended. Jesus, I pray that as we um, we search your word for the best intentions of our life. And I thank you that we have this spirit inside of us that teaches us and allows us to understand, one, your word, but allows us to uh, apply it to our personal situations, each one being so different. And so today I ask that your spirit just move in this room. I know there's some hurting marriages. There's some, um, some people that are just looking for answers. I pray that you would respond to them very clearly. I thank you for a community where we can talk about it openly and discuss it and there be no condemnation. I thank you for the love in this room. I thank you for your word. And most of all, I thank you for salvation. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.